0: Welcome to the current episode of the ISAS podcast series where we are delighted to have with us Dr. and Professor Sanjay Katuria, who is our guest today. Sanjay Katuria is somebody who has been with us before on the ISAS podcast series and uh, many of you might already be knowing him not just through his presence on this series, but also through the vast body of work and research that he has done in a very distinguished career. Uh, We are very glad to share that right now, Dr. Katuria is a non-resident senior fellow with the Institute of South Asian Studies. In addition to that, he holds adjunct professorships with the Georgetown University in the United States of America, as well as with the Ashoka University in India. And prior to that, he left behind a long career of very distinguished uh, policy research work at the World Bank, where he was the lead economist of the South Asian region. Welcome, Dr. Katuria, to today's conversation. Thank
1: you very much, uh, Amitindu. I'm delighted to be here, as always.
0: Thank you, Dr. Kathuria, and today uh, we are discussing with you uh, something which uh, is a bit unusual subject in the sense that most subjects with respect to the South Asian region uh, tend to touch India at least peripherally, if not significantly, uh, practically in all conversations simply because of its size. But today's conversation is connected to two other uh, major economies of the region and these are Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. And you are perhaps the best person to reflect on uh, the subject that we aim to discuss, which is essentially the currency swap uh, that's just been announced between Bangladesh and Sri Lanka because you have been uh, following the region in totality. So what I would like to start off with, uh, Dr. Katuria, is by alluding to this recent uh, 200 million Singapore, $200 million currency swap between Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. Now, what uh, is interesting about this arrangement is that uh, Bangladesh has been, uh, quote unquote, the donor country in this regard on the swap. And it is also perhaps for the first time that Bangladesh has stepped into this territory of extending a currency swap arrangement to another uh, economy a move which, at least in the South Asian region, uh, is uh, usually associated with the largest economy of the region, that is India. Now, uh, would you think that this is, in a way, a reflection of the changing economic balance of power within uh, South Asia? How, How do you view this announcement from a South Asian perspective?
1: Uh, yeah, thank you, Amitendu, for that. Um, it's a good way to start this discussion. Yeah, I mean, perhaps it's too early to say that there is a changing balance of power, but I certainly think that it reflects the dynamics of the last uh, of the last few years uh, in the region, where Bangladesh has been growing at a healthy clip, and uh, all the other countries uh, have been seeing. Uh, declines, including in India, has been showing a sharp slowdown in its growth rate, as you know, even before before COVID. So, and I really uh, unhesitatingly welcome this this change, or this what you know, this hopefully this will continue, because I think for South Asia it is good to have um, you know someone other than India also to focus on, um, and so I, I welcome this. So, I, and I will amplify on this. I have four or five reasons why I think this is good uh, for the region. Um, So first, as I was saying, that it helps the region move away from its fixation on India uh, and provides uh, opportunities for uh, more meaningful non-India bilateral partnerships. So that's one. Secondly, also it helps India to be, be less dominant in the region. And I can take an example from energy. Right? So, if you look at the BBIN space—Bangladesh, Bhutan, India, Nepal—they have been discussing, uh, you know, bilateral and trilateral energy cooperation within the region. And for example, Nepal has always been worried uh, that it's uh, that India will be too dominant a buyer of its energy of its uh, power exports. Now, with India having allowed this arrangement of trilateral, uh, you know the power to be wheeled through India from Nepal to Bangladesh. And now with Bangladesh in a position to buy increasing amounts of power from Nepal and from in fact from Bhutan when that eventually, uh, when this happens. So this can reduce, uh, for example, Nepal's fear of being too dependent on India as a buyer. So I think that is a second reason for welcoming in uh, Bangladesh's rise. Thirdly, the, the Bangladesh-India nexus itself, I think, is it becomes stronger. You know, the growth of Bangladesh's middle class, its uh, its multinational firms who are investing in India and in Africa. Now, all of this strengthens uh, the largest bilateral partnership in South Asia. It's already the largest partnership. It can it can deepen further, and it's a win-win for, for both countries. Uh, the fourth reason is Bangladesh itself. I think its growth uh, improves its own self-confidence, uh, its role in India's Act East policy. It will now uh, enable and push in fact for growing connectivity uh, uh, between India and Bangladesh and more broadly in this BBIN and BIMSTEC region because I think it, is, uh, it, will, uh, it will become more confident in its own, you know, in its own strength and its economic power, and 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 lastly, I think all other countries in the region can certainly learn from Bangladesh's experience of of prudent uh, macroeconomic management and debt management, and I think all of these uh, factors put together are welcome and they will help uh, uh, to reduce the trust deficit. That is induced by India's disproportionate economic weight in the region.
0: I think uh, Dr. Kachuria, what you uh, point out is very significant because uh, Bangladesh really has been the, in a, in a sense, the brightest spot in the South Asian development experience, at least for the last ten to fifteen years. Looked at in totality, India might have been growing at a much faster rate. But Bangladesh probably has been able to uh, take strides in a way which many had not expected from it, particularly it's, it's not yet even five decades that Bangladesh was actually famously referred to as the basket case. So I just wanted to deflect on this point at a time when we are really talking about the fact that Bangladesh has managed its macro economy rather well in a fairly uh, distinguished fashion if we cast our attention to the other economy in the space of our discussion to Sri Lanka. And uh, it it seems a little sad in the sense that Sri Lanka probably began uh, the development journey in its own trajectory in the region uh, with the most outward-oriented economic policies unfortunately later entered into this uh, tragic uh, trajectory of civil conflict, which led to enormous loss of lives and investor confidence. And probably what we are getting to see, in spite of the conflict having ended uh, for more than 10 years now, there appears to be some uh, rather disturbing aspects to the way Sri Lanka has been managing its macroeconomy, primarily in terms of the very large volume of debt that it has compiled, and uh, there have been concerns over the kind of borrowings that Sri Lanka has been making, uh, not just from the private uh, debt markets, but also from countries like China and Korea, many of which are uh, going into investments like the Hamantuta report, which have been controversial. Now, if you uh, look at Sri Lanka as an economy at this juncture, and this is an economy which clearly needs a quick economic turnaround, it needs macroeconomic stability, it needs its uh, balance of payments and internal debt and public finance management to become much more stable and robust. What would you think should be the right way forward for the Sri Lankan economy at this stage?
1: Yeah, so maybe I'll just begin with a little bit of context and elaborate on what you were saying. So as you, as you were saying that, you know, uh, there was after the, the, for a couple of years, for three years actually after the post, after the war ended in 2009, there was a post-war boom, but it was driven by, you know, unsustainable increases in government spending, uh, including the, you know, mega infrastructure projects like the Hamad Tota Port that you mentioned. Uh, so its growth, which was going at eight uh, to nine percent after the war, it it plummeted to 2.3% in 2019, which was the pre-COVID year. And of course, last year, 2020, it was negative, negative 3.6%. But uh, worryingly, all of this, the external debt uh, kept growing. Uh, and uh, you know it went up from less than 40% in 2010 to 55% in 2014, and then 69% in 2019. And and now, uh, and this has increased further, uh, and all of this increase or most of this increase has in fact originated in the public sector. So the the latest uh, economic update of the World Bank in spring uh, uh, casts Sri Lanka as facing a higher risk of debt sustainability. And if you look at overall, and it's been downgraded by the rating agencies as well. uh, the overall debt to GDP ratio in Sri Lanka in 2021 is now at a massive 115%. Now, just in context, Bangladesh is 42%. So that gives you right there the reason why we've had this, you know, the flipping of of the places in Bangladesh as a lender. Now, but as you were mentioning, I think the crisis, the roots of the crisis, are a bit deeper than just this. Uh, the re- you know the splurge in government spending, and I think the roots are in trade, uh, as you said. Sri Lanka was the first economy in South Asia to start liberalizing its economy, but this course was reversed in 2000, in the early 2000s, and we have documented in uh, you know in the World Bank report that we did uh, in uh, 2018, the glass half full, where it uh, started levying. Uh, non-transparent, para-tariffs, all kinds of which they gave them different names, but in effect, there were tariffs which were not reported. But if you include para-tariffs in the calculation of tariffs, then the, the reported tariffs double, the average reported tariffs actually double. And so an already protected economy, even just looking at plainly you know, the reported tariffs, it becomes even more protected and it, uh, protection rates are in excess of 22 percent on average in the economy, and, uh, and this hides even you know, dispersion, much higher effective protection in, in sectors that are of domestic interest. So there is an increasing anti export bias in the economy. Uh, there are current account deficits every year, trade deficits. And all of these impulses actually have seen a boost uh, in the new government, uh, which took power in 2019. Uh, so they've actually received a further boost. And so, you know, it always astounds me that these numbers that I'm about to give you, all of which I said, the trade bias, the anti-export bias, is reflected in trade numbers. Trade to GDP ratio in Sri Lanka was peaked at about 89% in 2000. um, But it declined to 46% in 2010 and rose a little bit uh, by 2019, but it was still only over just over 50%, 52% in 2019, and similarly in exports to GDP. But I think this uh, decline in trade is, uh, especially for a small modern open economy, I think is without precedent that I can, I have not heard of this. I have not seen this happening anywhere else in the world. And this decline was happening at a time when, especially in the first decade of the 2000s, when world trade was booming. And South Asia was capturing a growing share of world exports and world trade. And South Asia uh, trade to GDP ratio at the same time, Sri Lanka was plummeting in the rest of South Asia, including, I mean, the figures include Sri Lanka, but that was small. The, the Sri Lanka, the South Asia trade to GDP ratio went up from 29% in 2000 to about 51% in 2008. So, you know, this shows the growing, you know, the going growing, growing contrast between, between Sri Lanka and the rest of South Asia. So I think what is implicit in what I have said is the way forward for Sri Lanka, which is the question that you asked. It has to embrace trade. It cannot, as a small economy, it simply cannot continue the anti-export bias that currently in, uh, you know, is the centerpiece of its trade policy the previous government signed an fta with singapore it was never implemented it needs to carry that forward it needs to uh, again for many years there have been uh, you know so many rounds of talks of trade a uh, free trade agreement with china never happened uh, and again you know for a decade uh, they have been discussing a deepening of its free trade agreement with india it hasn't yet happened so so this um, this needs to the trade the embrace of trade for a small economy is completely—it's necessary for it to, to uh, turn around its overall uh, the anemic trade. In fact, the negative trade, ne- negative growth rate that it's been seeing. So, so the trade hesitancy has to be done away with. Uh, it does not actually come. It, it is making massive investments in trade infrastructure, such such as the Hambantota port, expanding Colombo port. This does not sit well with. The anti-export bias in trade. Okay, so to complement these investments, it has to embrace trade. Secondly, uh, it has to uh, uh, give space to the private sector uh, uh, and and not become a, a public sector-driven economy. Right. Um, uh, so therefore, it uh, needs a lot of improvements in its uh, investment climate, which I think it uh, issues that it shares with the rest of South Asia, but there are particular things. Uh, in um, in Sri Lanka, and the economy needs to be driven by ev- by the private sector, domestic investment, and foreign investment. And finally, uh, you know there are many other things, but you know uh, these are the three things I want to focus on. Finally, uh, I think it needs to take a very close look at debt management and and subject new uh, government investment. You know what's in the past is done, but subject new government investment to very close to rigorous cost benefit analysis and public scrutiny right otherwise uh, you know we don't want uh, future investments to go the way of you know having very low uh, and, and often you know perhaps negative social returns that we have seen in many projects of the past
0: i think that was uh, really very illustrative uh, Dr. Katuria, and uh, you you covered a very wide expanse of reasons explaining what's going wrong with the Sri Lankan economic management and I think one of the points that you alluded to perhaps the core of your argument was the fact that uh, a country like Sri Lanka could not really capitalize the opportunity that it had of engaging much more in global trade integration and the benefits it could have obtained out of it primarily uh, out, out of its uh, aggressive export orientation, which again is something that we see for Bangladesh. We do see very clearly that uh, Bangladesh is probably, if, if I'm not mistaken, then in the entire South Asian region, Bangladesh is probably the best example of a manufacturing export growth driven industrialization and the kind of benefits that it has brought for the economy. However, uh, you also alluded to the fact that Bangladesh has room to grow further. And I I wanted to contextualize this uh, with the current uh, situation in Bangladesh, uh, which is basically that of Bangladesh going to graduate from an LDC to a non ldc status within another two and a half to three years. It successfully covered all the milestone, but the moment it does that, uh, it faces this rather significant challenge of losing the uh, non-reciprocal, unilateral preferential access that it has in the world's most major markets, including the European Union, where it uh, enjoys the everything but arms preferential access, and in other many OECD countries and we also note the fact that bangladesh exports have got a bit you know uh, uncharacteristically concentrated around garments garments and textiles so keeping these two at the back of uh, our argument and looking at the fact that probably bangladesh will need to keep focusing on trade as its most powerful engine of growth as it goes ahead what do you think should be Bangladesh's trade and export strategy going ahead? And I just want to add this thought for your consideration that Bangladesh surprisingly has not shown that uh, great activism for entering into free trade still now at least. So how do you actually uh, want to sum this up? Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. Um, um, so I think I agree. So as I had mentioned in my piece, uh, Bangladesh certainly has room to grow both domestically and through trade. Uh, and in the trades, uh, trade front, both garments and other merchandise and service exports. But uh, let me just give one um, a quick point before I get into that on macro, because I think it differentiates it from Sri Lanka. And we already hinted at it, but it is in fact, One reason why Bangladesh has been a success story is in in a sense because it has lived within its means. It is very sound macroeconomic management, uh, perhaps the best in South Asia, Uh, external debt is only 17 to 18% of GDP. And, And of course, part of the reason for this is the steady increase in its growth rate, which meant the denominator was growing very fast. So the debt to GDP ratio was under control, but obviously, it is uh, a partly that is an endogenous phenomenon because it has managed its debt well and not crowded out of the private sector. Therefore, it has given the private sector room to grow. So, um, now on the export story, yes, it is um, you know it shares some of the problems of Sri Lanka, but it is a more nuanced and a much more uh, uh, su- a much greater success story than has than has been Sri Lanka's. Uh, export story and exports have played a role in the Bangladesh's growth success. They've grown as a share of uh, GDP. Uh, you know, just look at the contrast. Now, although Bangladesh is a much bigger economy, much bigger country, but in 2004, both countries had the same level of exports. Exactly the same 7.4 billion in 2004. Uh, 7.3 billion goods and services exports. Right. Now, uh, fifteen years later, in twenty nineteen, Sri Lanka's exports were nineteen billion. Bangladesh was were uh, forty six billion. Right, so there you have it. Right. Uh, now, um, so now Bang. Now, now obviously, Bangladesh needs to uh, diversify, as you as you uh, as you mentioned. Right. Um, uh, now, let me let me provide some numbers here again. Uh, Bangladesh exports around um, uh, 30 to 40 billion dollars of garments. Right uh, now, I'm first coming to the garments argument that it has room even in garments, but then it needs to go beyond garments. So, so let's start with garments first. So, it exports um, uh, 30 to 34 billion worth of garments. China, which has been gradually re- reducing its share of uh, world garments exports. Uh, Current, uh, you know, it went, it had it, garments exports. I was looking at the numbers yesterday. Uh, it it uh, Garments exports were about 145 billion in 2018. And in 2020, they went down to about 124 billion. But it is still by far the most dominant player. And as this goes down, then the other two biggest, biggest players, Vietnam and Bangladesh, have a lot of room to grow, right? Because they're both doing 30 to 35 billion. China is still doing 124 billion, so you know the graph can go in an opposite direction for for these three countries. Um, and in addition to garments, Bangladesh should be growing in other uh, labor-intensive sectors because it has it has done well in mass manufacturing. As you said, Bangladesh's exports are m- merchandise exports are 83 percent of those are occupied by garments. Right, so there is a lot of room. Uh, to also grow in a non-government sector. Now, how, how can this be done here? And I think one, I will start with the tariff policy, which is very much resembles Sri Lanka's. There is a strong anti-export bias in its uh, tariff and trade policy. Again, very high, uh, you know, this, not, this um, paratariffs and, and very high tariffs in sectors of domestic interest, and which hurts new exporters potential export. So this needs to be fixed and it has shown reluctance to, to change this. Uh, you know, When I was there, posted in Bangladesh for three years, uh, we continued, we tried a lot to, to work on this, but we didn't uh, get very far. And this is continues to be an issue of where Bangladesh really needs to work very hard. Uh, second aspect, which is related is Bangladesh needs to provide uh, non-discriminatory treatment to its own domestic sectors. Currently its regime is uh, just c- cocoons and shelters the garments industry and it provides fantastic duty-free treatment to imports which are needed for the garments industry through the uh, what it calls its bonded warehouse regime. But this regime doesn't go to other sectors. and therefore the other sectors do not enjoy that sheltering. That the garment sector does. And it is high time that that very, if a very good bonded warehouse regime uh, is extended now to, to other sectors of the economy uh, in the same way that it is ex- extended to uh, to governments. And three, uh, it needs to improve logistics, right? So uh, the ranking of 2018 in the, in the last uh, World Bank Logistics Performance Index Bangladesh was ranked at 100, right? So it needs to improve its uh, ports, uh, the customs clearances, uh, the internal goods movement, and the overall turnaround time. So because this is, you know, this we certainly know this is a very critical factor in uh, in trade. And finally, the issue that you raised, Amitendu, with graduation and the whole issue of FTAs, I agree with you 100%. Um, that yes uh, there is you know bangladesh will not continue to enjoy after three or four years the uh, the same treatment and the unilateral preferences that it is that has been enjoying so far uh, since uh, in since 1971 and it has been very hesitant to uh, to embrace uh, you know overall you know trade the anti export bias that exists in a trade policy i'm happy to note that it is now at least officially endorsed the idea of a free trade of, in fact, a comprehensive economic partnership with India and in the MOU, in the recent MOU MOU between the two prime ministers, there is the idea that it will begin working. Both countries are now working on the contours of what a SIPA uh, between India and Bangladesh might look like. And I hope that this will be the beginning of a, a starting to work on a framework. I think it's early days to say whether it will actually sign you know a free trade agreement or a sepa but at least it is shown its willingness to start looking at the idea and hopefully you know it will be the beginning and it is definitely needed because you know countries will start demanding reciprocal uh, market access that they have not done not done so far
0: kurturia i think uh, you know ultimately what we are probably getting uh, in, in, in a sense of a broader understanding when we look at uh, uh, these two economies, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, and probably they started off uh, on almost identical baselines but there were expectations that were far more with respect to Sri Lanka than Bangladesh and uh, quite rightly so because Sri Lanka's performance of the human development indicators has been uh, remarkable. Even, even by uh, developed country standards, it's been quite remarkable. But Bangladesh uh, seems to have really surprised uh, a lot of uh, scholars, experts, and business people. And uh, this is in spite, uh, if one can argue, this is in spite of being a part of a region which uh, over the last uh, decade, certainly, if not more, has been uh, witnessing very strong power rivalry geopolitical power rivalry, primarily between China and India, and uh, the relatively smaller countries are finding it rather hard uh, to balance their interests between the two countries. And one of the outcomes has probably been what we popularly refer to as the debt trap uh, uh, diplomacy. And this is something uh, when it is alluded to with respect to the region and Asia and generally the developing world at large that we talk about. Sri Lanka is often taken as an example, particularly the fact that uh, projects like the Hambantuta Port and elsewhere and the recent uh, Colombo Port City Economic Commission's bill, which the Sri Lankan legislature has passed, giving uh, practically full control over land and assets of the Colombo Port City that is being built to uh, the Chinese investors. now i wanted to check uh, this with you that uh, you know there there there's, there are uh, studies there's uh, good, strong research pointing to sri lanka's debt profile external debt profile very large debt profile suggesting that uh, well maybe it's not entirely the chinese debt that's behind the current uh, problems that sri lanka has perhaps it's largely because of the uh, government uh, irrationality in picking up private debt at very high coupon rates. But having said that, the Chinese debt continues to remain rather substantial. And it also remains the fact that not much of other external investor interest is being seen in Sri Lanka right now. So in a sense, the Sri Lankan investor engagement with the Chinese economy and Chinese investors is probably Uh, been able to crowd out, as we say, a lot of other non-Chinese investors from the economy. Now, what what does this mean for the Sri Lankan economy? Does it really mean that uh, this is an economy which is uh, kind of in the grips of a very large uh, power, geopolitical power like China, and uh, in in future? Sri Lanka's economic trajectory and economic fashion of development will, to a large extent, be guided by the obligations that it has entered into. Yeah,
1: so so I think the, I would preface this by saying that, you know, um, we cannot, um, if the implicit strategy in Sri Lanka is that, you know, all of this will help me to grow, and i can kind of grow my way out of debt i think that that doesn't work we have seen that is not a sound strategy for debt management so this is by way of a uh, you know preface uh, remarks uh, initial remarks and i would say also is that if there was an example as i just mentioned in in south asia be like bangladesh not like sri lanka or pakistan when in terms of handling debt and government investment um, uh, certainly, as you mentioned, the, the, the Chinese have become more and more prominent. Obviously, there are other debtors, especially official debtors, but uh, in terms of the private sector, well, in the case of China, it is not private. I guess, other under, under bilateral debtors, uh, China has becoming increasingly prominent. But I do want to, in this context, uh, refer a little bit to the recent study, a very detailed study of uh, of uh, a careful study of 100 Chinese sovereign lending contracts, which was done globally by Aid Data, Peterson, uh, the Center for Global Development, and Kiel. Um, so they looked in, they managed to get 100 contracts and studied them in a lot of depth. Um, and here are three or four of the broadest conclusions. And I think borrowing countries would do well to study, uh, to, uh, to look at this study. Um, so one is that there are far-reaching confidentiality clauses uh, in these contracts with China to not disclose any contract terms. Sometimes even the existence of the loan itself uh, is, is part of the contract that denied or not, not disclosed to the public that there exists such a loan. So there is non-transparency. Uh, second is that 30, thirty of those 100 contracts, 30% by... Uh, uh, by number and 55% of by loan value, they required special bank accounts for security. Again, this is a non-transparent clause, collateral. It's, the third was that it uh, uh, 75% of the contracts did not have Paris Club uh, clauses in them. That means they were excluded from uh, joint from the uh, provisions of joint debt restructuring and comparable debt treatment. If you know, if there was default, then then the normally Paris Club gets together and negotiates uh, together with all other lenders. Well, 75 percent of the contracts uh, did not have those con- uh, clauses, and they also had cross-default clauses. Um, that means you, you default on one, then you can you know all the other. If you have other lending, then there is it uh, triggers those uh, clauses. So you you default on one, that means you're defaulting on all the other. Obligations from from China, and and then several contracts contained uh, novel terms that amplified the lender's influence over the debtor's economic and foreign policies. So, going just beyond uh, the the economic issues, it was broader, uh, 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 bro- going beyond uh, debt and uh, debt management, going beyond to other broader economic policies, and even in the, some cases, even to foreign policy. Now, so I want to, what I want to uh, close this uh, particular um, set of comments is by saying that, okay, all of the, this is there, but ultimately it is the borrower who enters into the contract, right? Nobody is forcing you to enter into this contract with China or any other lender, right? So that is why public debate, public scrutiny is so important. It takes two to conclude a deal, right? So- Uh, On the borrower's side, what's happening there? Who's negotiating? Who's taking the final call on the loan and its terms? Is the the loan debated ex ante, before the deal is concluded? Is it debated in parliament? Is it debated in civil society? So I think all of this becomes very important. And we've seen this both in the case of Sri Lanka and Pakistan that where such things of of such uh, debate and scrutiny has not been there then the government has then run into issues of uh, of borrowing uh, and you know uh, and being forced to to go to many other uh, lenders and not least to the IMF. And it is not surprising, therefore, that the two of the most frequent borrowers in South Asia uh, from the IMF are Pakistan and Sri Lanka. You know, this is it's part of its uh, you know the the um, the, the debt. That it enters into, then it leads to them. Uh, they have to go to uh, you know, the lender of last resort, uh, which is which is uh, China, which is the, the IMF. And, and the reason why, uh, and you know, with the, the, the comment that you made that there are not many others other than China in terms of bilateral lenders or even the private sector coming to Sri Lanka. And I think this goes back to the point that I made is that. Sri Lanka needs to have a much more open and transparent regime for foreign investment so that the private sector is energized and incentivized to enter. Otherwise, you will have, you know, continue to have the kind of non-transparent deals and this can lead to trouble, macroeconomic trouble, as we have seen.
0: Dr. Katuria, it's always such a pleasure and a fascinating learning from your insights. and. We can, we can go on, but I'd like to round up and probably end our today's conversation uh, with, with the most pressing concern of our time, that is the COVID-19, which continues to rage across South Asia. And uh, we we are really witnessing something which is not just unprecedented, but which is also very difficult to tackle in terms of the arsenal that countries need to tackle this, and I'm specifically referring to vaccinations. Uh, The problem that seems to be uh, surfacing across most of South Asia uh, is that apart from India, uh, which has the capacities of producing its own vaccines, uh, much as even such capacities are turning out to be short for the very large number of people that it has to vaccinate over a given period of time, both Bangladesh and Sri Lanka are actually primarily relying on the WHO's COVAX facility for accessing vaccines or the bilateral arrangements, some of which which they have with in India and a few other countries. But till now, they are both not having sufficient vaccines. And the possibilities of more waves, repeated waves coming back, new mutations cannot be discounted. And for countries like Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, it is very difficult to persist with. Uh, isolation in the sense they just really can't keep their borders closed for a very long period of time. Now, uh, we have discussed their respective macroeconomic uh, characteristics at this point in time. We have discussed their performances. But I, I would be very keen on having as a final thought your take on how do you think access to vaccines and the ability to manage COVID can individually affect the prospects of these two countries, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka? at this point in time?
1: Yeah, you know, I think uh, obviously the vaccination, the vaccination process is going to be the most critical in terms of recovery and how quickly recovery happens. Um, And, you know, uh, there were certain pleasant upsides, especially remittances, you know, this year for all of South Asia. And uh, certainly for for Bangladesh and Pakistan and Sri Lanka, so they so this was uh, they negated predictions of, of a, about a decline, and this has been one of the things that has kept uh, you know the the at least that was part of the good news, and that has managed to put a downside on the uh, on the decline in the economies and on poverty. But nevertheless, as you know, uh, South Asia has been the hardest hit in the world. Um, and obviously, because of India and its its weight in South Asia, uh, in terms of uh, the impact on the economy and also on poverty, uh, but the recovery is fragile. Uh, you know, um, even though you know now, you know the lockdowns are easing uh, after the second wave and so on, the recoveries have been fragile. And um, according to the World Bank, for South Asia as a whole, uh, the economic activity in twenty twenty one will be. 12% below the pre-COVID trend, right? And this may actually be worse now because I think these projections were made uh, just before the second wave hit. Uh, so I think here, I'm certainly more confident about Bangladesh than about Sri Lanka because I think those who were in a stronger fiscal position pre-COVID will, feel, will de- definitely feel more confident. Um, uh, and, and Sri Lanka is in a tough place uh and, and um you know it is having issues of you know of not just the fiscal position but also on its foreign exchange position uh which is why it went to bangladesh uh, again uh, yesterday or day before the central bank announced a host of new restrictions on on use, on the use of foreign exchange um you know uh, import restrictions and so on so i think this does not bode well for uh, for the immediate uh, future of of sri lanka although obviously as you said it has some positives especially on the social side and on you know on on terms of its the systems health and education systems which are uh, more uh, tougher and more resilient uh, but overall if if you look at in terms of economic health i think um, uh, even though all countries in south asia have have uh, issues uh, those who were better off pre covid especially in terms of the fiscal uh, situation uh, and the financial situation, will be better off uh, now as COVID is uh, with the recovery phase after, after COVID. But uh, the, you know, what COVID has exposed is, is uh, gender inequity. It has exposed all the frailties and the vulnerabilities, the digital access, uh, the plight of informal workers and all of that. So... I think along with vulnerable financial systems, which are true of both uh, Bangladesh as well as Sri Lanka, the, they will need to ex- address um, the, the vulnerability in the financial systems because they've all had moratoriums on, on debt and there's been debt forgiveness and so on. So, so I think recovery will be long and hard, uh, perhaps less so in Bangladesh uh, than in Sri Lanka. Um, and one final word on South Asia, to the extent that uh, that supply chains overall are becoming, uh, you know, with, with the pressure for diversification to exit from China and all of that, that happened even even before COVID. To the extent that supply chains are being becoming more regional and more localized, uh, South Asian countries should find uh, new and old ways to to work together so that they can uh, help to minimize or re- at least reduce the pains from COVID and they can start with cross-border learning. Right? So I'll stop you, thank you.
0: Dr. Katuria. it's always such a fantastic pleasure listening to you. Thank you so much for being with us today on this ISAS podcast series. Thank you so much for sharing your very valuable insights.
1: Thank you, Amitendo. It was always always a pleasure to work with you and ISAS and the team.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Katuria. Friends, that was Distinguished Economist and ISAS Non-Resident Senior Fellow, Dr. and Professor Sanjay Katturia with us today on the subject of Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Currency Swap, around which several other subjects pertinent to both countries and South Asia were discussed. Hope you enjoyed the conversation and please follow us on the social media and elsewhere to tune in more of our podcasts. Thank you. Have a very nice day ahead.